Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible with you, would you open to John chapter 11 with me today? John chapter 11. And um, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. I think we probably have an usher or somebody who will <laughs> bring you a, uh, um, a text. Yeah, so we've got one there. Megan, would you mind handing those out? Um, great. So if you, don't have a, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one that we're giving to you as well. Because we just want you to have a copy of the scriptures. So John chapter 11, we are in a series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, and we're looking at the seven signs, the seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs in the book of John. And the thing that we're learning is that these are more than just miracles. It's never just about the fact that Jesus can do some sort of supernatural work or something like that. There's always a message beneath the sign about who God is and about what he's doing and about who we are in light of that truth. And so we're going to start at verse 32. John chapter 11, verse 32, says this, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now her brother is Lazarus and he has recently passed away. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So our passage today that I just read uh, includes what I think is the shortest verse in the New Testament. Um, it's a favorite verse of middle school boys in Sunday school who are called on to recite a Bible verse because it's only two words long. And it's like, I think in the Greek it might actually only be one. I, was, I should look that up. It's John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. It's a short verse, but it's loaded with important truth about God, about what God is like. See, it shows us that Jesus is a God who feels things, which means Jesus is a God who can understand things. 
This is especially meaningful when we look at how John has described Jesus elsewhere in the, the gospel. In fact, if you were to go back to chapter one, you'd find John describing Jesus like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so what we have here is this vision of Jesus as the supreme, all-powerful, cosmic creator of everything. Everything that exists came into being through him, it says. And then we go from there to John 11, the, the passage that we just read, and, and the, the vision of Jesus that we're given there looks a little different. What we have now is, is Jesus, a man who is weeping. This is crucial for our understanding of faith. We learn here that God is a God who feels. He feels. And today I want to talk about how important that is for our faith and for our relationship with God. I remember when I was 18 years old, um, that was the beginning of the Second Gulf War. And I was watching it unfold on the news. And you might remember that they, uh, the, the, the American military started the campaign with this thing called Operation Shock and Awe. And the point of shock and awe is to hit the enemy so fast, so suddenly, so hard that it confuses and disorients them. And so as the American military is trying to blast the strongholds of Saddam Hussein, I remember sitting on my couch with my friend watching it on the news, almost like I was watching a movie. Now, I had concern, of course. I mean, war always has this meaning, this gravitas, no matter who you are, hopefully. But as an 18-year-old sitting in the comfort of my home, thousands of miles away, with the safety of being in the middle of the world's greatest superpower, watching it was honestly, dare I say, a little bit like entertainment. All I saw was a screen full of flashes of light and loud bangs. It could have almost been a 4th of July celebration for all I knew. But in the early days of Russia's attack on Ukraine, fast forward a few years now, in the early days of that conflict, once again I found myself watching the thing unfold on the news, sitting from my couch. But this time, the coverage was a little bit different. It wasn't just flashes of light in the darkness of night. I saw people. I saw fathers and sons heading off to war together. We saw regular citizens kneeling down in front of tanks. We saw people whose apartments had been destroyed. We saw newborn babies being hidden in closets. And when we saw that, my kids and I were quiet for a little while afterward. This wasn't entertainment. This, this felt real. That night, we were a little more somber at the dinner table. That night, we had conversations about the, about the, the reality of war that night, I prayed a little more fervently with my kids. In both of these examples, look, I, I was watching a conflict unfold on TV both times, but they were very different experiences. In both of them, I had the head knowledge. I had the factual knowledge of what was going on. But in only one of those two examples did I actually start to understand what was happening. And so now we're starting to see the difference between just knowing something and understanding something. Only when I started to feel the weight of the conflict can we say that I started to actually understand what was happening. Look, a person can have an encyclopedic knowledge of military strategy, of weapon systems, of maneuvers of modern warfare. They can understand the complex geopolitical issues that compel nations to attack each other. You can know all of those things. But if you don't somehow feel the weight of the travesty and tragedy that is war, then look, my elementary age child understands it better than you. Because I didn't understand the conflict until I felt it. 
This is important for us modern folks to understand because today I think uh, we seem to think that knowing something means not feeling it. In fact, feelings are often in our minds the kind of opposite of true understanding and knowledge. For example, we, we might think about the scientist in the lab who objectively weighs the data. They're not supposed to get emotionally involved in this. They're supposed to simply follow the data to wherever it leads. They must remain, remain objective. They, they must remain distant. Only then can they know what's true. Or you might think of the philosopher who, you know, their job is to kind of rationally deduce the truth through cold, hard logic, not a matter of what they want or how they feel, but simply what is rational. The bottom line is that for us to understand something means that you don't feel it. Feeling for us is sometimes a bad thing. It means you're not being objective. And I think sometimes we bring that to church. We bring that to our relationship with God a little bit. We're so modern in understanding of knowledge and truth and understanding. I've grown convinced that this picture of understanding has some problems with it, that it doesn't tell the whole story of what it is for a human being to understand something. The biggest problem, I think, is that if it were even possible for humans to be perfectly objective, then at that point we would stop being humans, we'd start being computers. One of the unique things about us is that we can feel, we have values and feelings and emotions, and, and contrary to what we often believe about what it truly means to understand something, I believe that it is our ability to feel that actually enables us to understand. Our feelings don't prohibit knowledge. They make it possible because, look, it wasn't until I started to feel something that I started to have some sliver of understanding about what was happening in this conflict across the world. Computers compute, but they don't understand. Humans understand. Because understanding requires some sort of connection, some sort of feeling. When images of war flash on your TV, when a baby takes their first steps, when somebody accomplishes something truly great, we only understand the significance of these events because we have a feeling attached to them. Without them, we don't understand them at all. Our text says that Jesus wept. The God of everything, through whom all things were made, understands the pain of loss and of death because he in some way feels it too. And I think that's remarkable. Listen, perhaps some of you grew up with a God who's kind of a cosmic computer. There's a God who is not intimately involved in your life, doesn't particularly care about your comings and goings, and you certainly wouldn't expect this God to be involved in your life at all. Remember how we learned that, you know, modern people, we tend to think understanding something means that we're like a scientist, no feelings towards it, right? That's the same picture of God that many of us have, I find. There's a word for it. It's called deism. Deism, it's no surprise that it came into existence around the Enlightenment era, the same time that our kind of understanding of what it means to understand was shifting, and so now, not only do we project our, under, our feeling, you know, our, get our feelings out of uh, the picture when it comes to knowledge and understanding, but we project that onto God too. God is no longer someone who feels according to this 
understanding of God, at least. Deism says that God made the world. He kind of pushed play and then just let it go. God has no real interest in it. He's not really involved in it. He has no feelings for you. God doesn't care about you in particular, so don't expect him to show up. That's what deism teaches. Now, when you think about it, deism kind of makes sense because, I mean, what do you do with a God who feels things? And isn't that kind of intention a little bit with this sovereign God, this omnipotent, eternal, never-changing God that we think about sometimes, right? And of course, all of those things are true of God, but isn't that a little bit intention with this idea of a God who cries? And so you can kind of understand why somebody might believe this. Because those two truths are hard for us to reconcile sometimes. How can a sovereign God get caught up in the affairs of tiny little ants like you and me? Doesn't that seem a little bit beneath him? Maybe it does. But unfortunately for deism, it gets blown up with two words. Jesus wept. Now the question arises. What was Jesus so sad about? I mean, Jesus knew that he's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead, right? Surely he, he knew that that was coming. You'd think that rather than crying, he'd be laughing. Why is Jesus so sad when he knows what's about to happen? It doesn't seem clear why he feels this so deeply when he apparently knows there will be a happy ending. Jesus is the word become flesh. I mean, it said earlier in John that everything that is has come to being through him. You think that the, the God who created the world can, you know, bring a back, guy back to life wouldn't be too hard? Here's why I think Jesus wept. Lazarus' death, of course, was the death of a friend, but it was more than that. I think, I think it was a stinging reminder of the dominion that death has over, over his precious creation, his beloved people. In that moment, Jesus understood the deep sadness that death brings. In a way, really none of us can understand it, because perhaps Jesus was feeling it in that moment, not just for Lazarus. Think of the sadness you feel when you lose a loved one. Perhaps he wasn't thinking of it just for Lazarus. Perhaps he was thinking of it for all of us, for all of creation. Perhaps in that moment, Jesus was just reminded of the dominion that this, this sinister evil has. Jesus was the creator of life, John tells us. But that creation that he made was poisoned by death. Death is the great enemy of God's good creation. It's the result of sin, sin which turns humans against each other and against God. Jesus wasn't just feeling it for Lazarus. He's feeling it for all of us. Lazarus' death was a reminder of all the pain and suffering that this insidious evil has wreaked upon all the pages of history. And look, that makes God cry. And so when Jesus stands at the mouth of the tomb and he shouts, Lazarus, come out. He wasn't just raising his friend back to life. He was initiating a rebellion against death itself. I think this helps make sense of what happens a few verses earlier when Jesus describes himself to Martha. He doesn't say, I am the sovereign, omnipotent, never-changing, eternal God. That's not how he describes himself. Here's what he says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just define himself by his limitless power. He defines himself by what he does with it. That he creates life that thrives. That is what matters most to Jesus. That is the defining characteristic of God that the story shows us. The point of the sign is that 
God wants life to flourish. That's the point of the sign. It's, I mean, yeah, it's awesome that Jesus can raise a, a dead man back to life. And if I saw somebody do that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go with that guy, you know? But that's not the entire point of the sign. There's always something deeper. And for us, it's this, that God is initiating a rebellion against death itself. That the way that it is now is not how it always has to be. And that something new is happening in Jesus Christ. And of course, in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the real consummation of it, right? When Jesus himself rose in victory over sin and death. But at this point, what we're seeing is a tremor of the earthquake that's about to come through Christ. What we're seeing is a, a pinprick of light break through the darkness as Jesus once again reminds death who its master truly is. The point of the sign is that God wants life to flourish. God is not a scientist in a lab, disconnected and unfeeling. God is a God who weeps, which means since God feels, God also understands. God does not experience your suffering like, he, like me as a teenager watching war on TV. He doesn't understand your pain from above. He understands it from below. He understands it from the ground level. He understands your pain because he feels it too. Jesus wept. That means Jesus, he understands. Because he feels we often ask the question, where is God when it hurts? And the answer is that God is hurting too. He's not this disinterested observer. He's not watching us through a microscope. He's a God who gets down into the dirt with us. There's just a lot of truth packed into those two words, isn't there? We don't understand something unless we feel it. Jesus feels pain, which means that he is a God who understands our pain. Let me ask you this though let me turn it around on us for a second do you feel your faith do you feel your faith are you just a casual observer of it when it comes to god i find that many people are kind of like 18 year old phil watching the gulf war on the news it's, yeah, it's something to watch something to watch play out on sundays but you're not really involved when we sing the songs do you feel it when we pray these ancient prayers of the church, do you feel it? When we read the scriptures, the words of God, do you feel it? When we invite you forward for prayer, do you feel it? Or do you just watch it? Listen, your faith is something you should feel. You can have the Bible memorized. You can have a, an immense knowledge of church history and theology. But if you don't feel anything, then how much do you really understand about your faith? On Ash Wednesday this year, we, uh, we did a thing where we invited you guys to come to the ministry center and just spend 10 minutes sitting down with a pastor praying, taking communion. And uh, thanks to everyone who came. It was really special. In fact, I was kind of, I wasn't really prepared for just kind of how it would unfold and the meaningfulness behind some of those moments that we got to share with, uh, with you in my office. And um, in fact, some of us, some of you didn't even hardly sit down before the tears started to well up in your eyes. And I, that's meaningful to me. And one of the greatest privileges that I have as a pastor is sometimes just being able to say, hey, God is with you in this. But why is it that in that moment we could feel it more? 
Well, the answer is because there's a certain, there's a, there's a vulnerability that comes with intimacy, right? And when it's just one-on-one or something like that, like there's a vulnerability that, that is available to us that we don't always have access to in large crowds, large gatherings like this. But I think one of the points here is that God wants us to know that every time you come in here, you can have that same intimacy with him. You can have that with God, every, not even just here, but wherever you go. I was flipping through the Psalms this week and I saw a note in the margins of my Bible that I'd written there during a particularly difficult season of ministry. I jotted down the difficulty I was facing just to remind myself what it was. And it was next to Psalm 69, verses 3 and 4. It says, I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. I saw that note and it took me back to that moment, which is a few years ago now, but took me back to that moment and I remember feeling like God drew me to that passage like that was the verse I needed for the day you know he knew I needed it he knew I needed to know that he saw my pain that he felt it too I just wonder what if we could come here every week and say look I don't just want to know about God I want to know God that means that we enter into this experience not just with our brains but with our hearts it means we don't just sing the songs and pray the prayers. It means that we feel them, that we, we find, we unlock some part of us that has been asleep or dead, that God wants to raise once again. It means we recognize that the truths of Scripture are the most important parts of our lives. Jesus' weeping shows us that God wants to connect, not just with our heads, but with our hearts. Your faith is something you should feel, and when you don't, then you don't truly understand your faith yet. God is not a cosmic scientist standing back and observing us. Jesus shows us that God is more like, he talks about this, Jesus tells us that God is like a dad on a front porch, just staring at the horizon, waiting for his prodigal runaway son to come back. It's just so that when the moment happens, when he sees him cross the horizon, so that he can leap up off the porch, make a fool of himself running to meet him there. Jesus says that God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but if he loses one of them, he's going to leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. That's what God is like. God weeps at the pain of his beloved children. We have a God who understands because he is a God who feels. So why wouldn't we do the same? Why would we come to worship and just do the whole upper Midwestern thing of, you know, right? Like, why would we do that? Why would we leave our Bibles closed all week? Why would we not search for the Lord in the difficult moments of our days? Why would we not make ourselves vulnerable and available to the God who feels and who weeps and who wants to weep with us? Why would we keep our burdens to ourselves? Why would we not lift our hands and worship sometimes? Listen, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, it is a sign of what Jesus wants to do in you. He wants to resurrect some part of you that's dead. He wants to breathe life into some part of you that has gone cold. So it's time to feel our faith. If it isn't something that affects you in your guts, then it isn't really faith yet. If you don't feel your faith, you don't understand your faith. It's time to open our hearts to God. A few weeks ago, I asked the question, what kind of church do we want to be, Table Church? You know, do we want to be a thoughtful church? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, do we want to be an active church in the community? Absolutely. Do we want to be seen as a caring church? Of course. But what do we want more than anything? What we want is to be a church that when people come, they leave and they say, table church, wow, 
Yeah, God is there. God is in that place. These people are chasing him. They are communing with him. That's who we want to be. And you know what? I've never had a meaningful encounter with God that I didn't also feel, you know? It's never been like, oh, thank you, Lord, for revealing to me the uh, square root of 17. You know what I mean? Like, it's always, the God is always speaking to something in my life at the moment that desperately needed to be shared. So if we're going to start recognizing the presence of God, then we need to come here with hearts that are open and vulnerable before him as well. That's hard sometimes if you haven't done it much. That's difficult if we weren't raised that way. And sometimes we talk about how I don't want to, you know, churches should not emotionally manipulate people. I agree. Whatever that is, I don't want to do that. I don't think we will. I don't think we could, right? We don't have enough flashing lights and smoke machines to do that kind of thing. But who knows? Maybe it's possible. But if that's whatever that is, that's not what we want to do. But I do want you to tap into the very heart of who you are. And I want you to connect that to God. And sometimes that means stepping out of what you're used to doing. Sometimes that it could just be completely internal. I don't know. Sometimes it might mean, you know what, today I just need to lift my hands and surrender to my maker. Because I need him right now. I need you, God. And so we're going to sing one last song, and I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy, but I do ask you to stand with me right now. And we're going to pray a prayer together. It's a prayer of surrender. I've prayed it before. It was written several hundred years ago by John Wesley. It's his prayer of surrender. And I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. You're not going to read this aloud with me. I'll just read it. But close your eyes. And if you're willing, would you just put your hands out in front of you and kind of a surrender to God? Make yourself a little vulnerable before him here. And would you just in your mind, in your heart, whatever it is that you brought, the burden that you carried in here today, I don't think you have to carry it out. Would you just surrender it to him now as you open your hands before him, just literally in your heart, just put it in your hands and say, God, would you take this from me? God, you are God who weeps for his children, for his lost friends. You are a father who sits on the front porch waiting to look silly, just sprinting towards your son that has come home. And so I'm coming home. Would you pray these words with me? It says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven.